Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. The past few years have seen a number of high-profile hearings on Capitol Hill, with representatives expressing concern and even outrage at tech CEOs, often for their failures to satisfy their own policies. And there have been high-profile investigations by certain committees, including the investigation of competition in digital markets in the House Judiciary Committee and its subcommittee on antitrust, commercial, and administrative law. But when it comes to passing legislation, Congress has made little progress in the domain of tech policy. An academic and a tech policy expert, today's guest played an active role in the investigations and legislative proposals led by Democrats over the last few years. Anna Linhart served as a staffer on the House Judiciary Committee Antitrust Subcommittee under Chairman David Cicilline, a Democrat from Rhode Island. In that role, she supported tech oversight and investigations, including the antitrust investigation. And she was a senior technology policy advisor to Representative Lori Trahan, a Democrat from Massachusetts who serves on the Energy and Commerce Committee. I caught up with Anna for a kind of exit interview as she recently left Congress to return to academia and a handful of projects focused on some of the same issues she cared about most in her time on the Hill. Here's Anna. My name is Anna Lenhart. My present affiliation, I'm just a scholar of sorts. We can we can get into that more. I was a congressional Hill staffer policy aide to two incredible members of Congress. So I worked for Congressman Cicilline in the second half of the 116th Congress on the antitrust investigation into Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. That was an investigation led in the House Judiciary Committee um, by now Chair Lena Khan um, and some other amazing lawyers. So I did that for, for a year. And then in the 117th Congress, I worked for Congresswoman Trahan, who is a member of the Consumer Protection Subcommittee on Energy and Commerce. And that's the subcommittee that does a lot of work on online safety, privacy, uh, and, and a range of other um, consumer protection issues. So we're going to learn a little bit from your experience in Congress. We're going to learn a little bit about what happened perhaps uh, behind the scenes in those committees and in what are really some of the most uh, kind of important you know, moments in, in, I suppose, tech policy in Congress over the last uh, few years, uh, particularly the antitrust mm-hmm. effort and, and also the more recent effort around looking at transparency and accountability for social media platforms. But how did you get to Congress? Just quick, yeah. quick run through <laughs> of your, your background. You're not sure. the sort of typical Hill Absolutely staffer. Not. Yeah. Um, so I had a really windy career. Um, I started actually in alternative energy. And then most of my 20s, I was a salesforce.com developer for a range of nonprofits. I also sat on a lot of nonprofit boards. And in 2018, 2019, I found myself working at IBM as a data scientist in the federal government sector. So working on automated decision systems at HUD, at Social Security Administration, USAID, And this was also the same time that a lot of AI ethics work was coming out, right? This idea of algorithmic impact assessments, explainability, discrimination in algorithms. And I was kind of looking at that work and figuring out how do we apply some of this. And some of it was coming out of IBM research. So that was nice. And I had approached our leadership and they had said, yeah, let's let's try to figure this out, right? It's time. 
And through that work, it became very clear that we need some laws. <laughs> we need some laws. We need some frameworks. We need some leadership uh, from the government. So there's this program called Tech Congress, and they place mid-career technology fellows onto the Hill in various offices. And so I, I got selected. It was an incredible opportunity. And you know, when I showed up with the fellowship, I really thought I was going to go work on automated decision systems and algorithmic impact assessments and, and data rights. But I quickly got introduced to Congressman Cicilline's antitrust committee team. And as I was starting to talk to them and really think about the work they were doing, I came to realize that a lot of the anti-competitive conduct they were looking at was happening at the hands of automated decision systems, right? So Amazon placing first-party products in the buy box or setting Alexa's default shopping commands to Amazon e-commerce or Google's ad exchange is running real-time bidding on ad space that Google owns, right? Apple places their apps first in the app store, right? This is a type of discrimination against new entries, against startups, right? So it was a little bit of a shift in thinking for me, but I, I ended up really taking that opportunity and I, I knew I wanted to dive in here and I got really sucked in. So I spent a lot of time looking at cloud markets, which are fascinating because they're a key input into AI. Um, and into IoT and into smart homes. So I was looking at that whole entire market space. Um, and then also looking at like browsers and other like data-centric pieces of the investigation. So things like, you know, we know the mob monopolies are able to collect and view a lot of data from their competitors that are using their platforms and then can create competitive first-party products. So really diving into some of that documentation. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was a crazy year. <laughs> um, it was the pandemic. You know, I just remember sort of sitting in my pajamas late into the night, going through all of these documents that we had collected. Um, and then the fellowship ended right around January 6th, which I know, you know, well, we might talk a little bit more about. And I, I knew I had to stay, was able to work for this relatively new member of Congress, Congressman Trahan from Massachusetts, who had an ad tech background, but up until that point hadn't been on the Committee of Jurisdiction, Energy and Commerce. So she didn't have really a portfolio. So it was this incredible opportunity to come in and build a new portfolio from scratch. And it ended up being a perfect fit for me. I have an entrepreneurial background. So it was just absolutely incredible two years. And I want to talk a little bit about you know, some of the legislation that, that she put forward. We'll get into that a bit. But you know, just kind of going back to the we'll work on antitrust, listen, from the outside, I would imagine... Uh, there must be some disappointment to see, you know, multiple bills come out of that process and really not a great deal to show for it ultimately. I don't know. How do you think about that? Maybe we can talk about that specifically, but also, I guess, how do you think about accomplishments, unfinished business and disappointment having, <sighs> having worked in tech policy in Congress? Yeah. <laughs> Look, um, I'm not known as an optimist. That's <laughs> definitely not what I'm known for. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, coming into the 117th Congress, the Democrats had the House, they had the Senate. We had just come off this bipartisan investigation. And what I would argue, of course, in a biased opinion, was a you know historic hearing with the four tech CEOs. There was a great amount of energy here. So yeah, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that I'm not devastated. <laughs> Right. Especially because the last few weeks of 2022, you know, I was looking around at all of my colleagues, including my colleagues in the Trahan office who got some incredible wins in health policy, um, well deserved, and colleagues in other offices. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, how, how did we not get these bills across? So I'd be lying if I didn't say 
you know, I did get my hopes up and they, and they were a little bit smashed. Um, but look, I don't have any unfinished business. I think the tech policy community put it all on the table, right? The coalitions we built these last few years were incredible and historic. The text we wrote and got marked up was incredibly historic. Uh, and not just the NHS bills, right? ADPA, the coalition built around COSA. I mean, just some incredible, incredible movement building. And also we shifted the narrative and I don't think we're going back on that, right? I mean, I think when I came to the Hill, there was still this narrative around members of Congress are stupid and they don't understand tech. That was still very alive. There was still a lot of, oh, but tech is creating so much good for society and so many free products. And I think we're starting to move away from that. And I think there's been you know, this space of people wanting democracy back, right? Like wanting elected officials to take some of their power back from these monopolists. And so huge wins in that regard. And I I don't have any quote unquote unfinished business. I think we put it all out on the table. And now the question is like, what happened? Why didn't they get across the line? And what do we do now? So I will grant you, you know, the language is of course now there. A lot of the investigative work is Mm -hmm. is now substantiated, the, yeah. there's plenty of sight, there's lots of evidence, et cetera. And it, it is true that perhaps the politics will change at some point in the future. But let me press you just a little bit on this. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that even on basic stuff like privacy, mm-hmm. Congress can't move ahead? You mentioned uh, yeah. you know, ADPPA, the uh, American Data Privacy and Protection Act, mm-hmm. which passed out of committee you know, mm-hmm. with near unanimous support mm-hmm. um, and yet you know, seems to have run into, in this case, California Democrats. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Big picture. So tech policy is a really interesting policy area because it is not a kitchen table issue. And what I mean by that is when you are a member of Congress... Your job is to respond to the needs and the concerns of your constituents. And that means you're getting phone calls. You're getting phone calls about climate change, about healthcare, about the economy. You're going to roundtables and task force meetings in your district. And you're getting asked questions about inflation and the war in Ukraine. And underneath all of that is tech policy. Monopolies lead to price gouging. Monopolies lead to harm to workers and reduced wages. The spread of COVID disinformation and climate disinformation <laughs> is because of our unhealthy environment, you know, online environment information ecosystems, right? I mean, one of my favorite things to share is that the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act, which is a, a bill I worked on in Congressman Tran's office, has 17 environmental orgs endorsing it, ranging from Greenpeace to Union of Concerned Scientists. Why is that? <laughs> right? That is because the recent climate change policy reports show that the ability for Exxon and Chevron and Shell to target ads and just the nature of many of these platforms to amplify sort of extreme views on climate change is making it hard to pass laws in that space. So I'm really lucky in that I work for members of Congress that understood that tech policy was at the base and the foundation of these quote unquote kitchen table issues, but that doesn't make it any easier (laughs) when you're trying to prioritize that work. And not all members are as effective at communicating that. And the public at large hasn't quite grasped that. So that's just an underlying challenge that tech policy has. The other interesting piece about tech policy compared to, again, say climate change, is that it's really hard to address with money alone. So what do I mean by that? We were able to do a historic climate bill this year because we were able to use 
the budget reconciliation process, which only required 50 senators to pass a set a set of tax incentives that encourage clean energy and sustainable practices. For tech policy, we don't really have an equivalent of that. Yes, we can give more money to the FTC, to NIST, to NTIA, to do more standards and frameworks, to do more enforcement of existing policies. And in fact, we did do that. And many of your listeners probably know that the FTC is hiring technologists now. That is in part because we were able to get them a funding boost, but it's certainly not as historic as what we were able to do in the Inflation Reduction Act for climate change. We need in tech tech policy world, we need new regulations. We need new rules and laws. And that requires 60 senators. Now, so that's, that's the first just other challenge that's thrown in the mix. Then on top of that, tech policy is bipartisan, actually, which is nice. So like if you and I were to go to the Hill right now and talk to a handful of Republicans and a handful of Democrats and say, hey, do we want comprehensive privacy? They would they would all say yes. Where it gets challenging is that when you start to get into the details of that, it becomes very hard to hold a coalition together. And then there's this just like, I don't even know how to explain it, but to get a policy through, especially one that's going to require 60 senators, you need a little bit of a bunch of things to line up. So we already mentioned you need to have the text. You need to have the thoughtful, passionate members of Congress in the right spot. You need to have leadership aligned. You need to have the executive branch aligned. And then, and I wish this wasn't true, but it is, you need a catalyzing event. And in tech policy, we just don't get as many catalyzing events, at least not directly. And in the few we've had, we just haven't had everything lined up, right? So if you look at Cambridge Analytica, it was a catalyzing event for sure, but we didn't have the privacy language. It hadn't been written. A lot of bills got written after Cambridge Analytica, but we really didn't have any great text floating around that had already been discussed and socialized. And then fast forward to the Facebook papers and same thing. We just didn't have everything lined up, right? We had a few transparency bills floating around. So Congressman Trahan, for example, had the Social Media Data Act, but PADA hadn't been written. DeSosa hadn't been written. The Kids Online Safety Act hadn't been written. Pat and DeSos are comprehensive transparency bills for, for those who aren't familiar. So they hadn't been written. They hadn't been marked up. They weren't there. They weren't ready. And then we didn't have that ingredient of the executive branch coming in and saying, great, we had this huge catalyzing event. This is the policy we need you to do, right? For the last two, three years, we've had the executive branch specifically, I'm putting antitrust to the side for a moment, specifically for privacy and online safety. We had a lot of really interesting speeches, States of the Union, where we said, you know, ban surveillance advertising for kids, or, you know, we need comprehensive privacy, we need to protect healthcare data. We had these interesting pieces, but there was no Congress passed this bill that looks like this. And both of the chambers, you need to get together and do that. Well, let's just talk about this for yeah. a second, because the White House, you know, of course, has hosted multiple roundtables, mm-hmm. you know, um, did release its principles for mm-hmm. tech policy reform. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there wasn't sort of a a push around a particular bill. Even in this mm-hmm. most recent State of the Union, the president brought up child online safety, but there wasn't a particular call to mm-hmm. pass, for instance, the Kids Online Safety Act. Does that kind of suggest that even at the White House, there's sort of like a, I don't know, just not certainty about exactly whether these bills are the right bills or how exactly to move forward? I mean, look, I can't I can't say for sure. All I can say is that when we look at the incredible legislation that did get done these last two years, right? So the infrastructure law, IRA, chips, there was this coalescence of leadership in the executive branch with the leadership of both chambers and both parties in both chambers for, for the ones that were bipartisan. 
And I just, I didn't see that happening from where I was sitting on tech policy issues. Now, look, there's a lot of speculation, as you know, several of the leaders in both chambers and both parties have ties to big tech. I don't know what role that played. I really don't. It's possible it played a role. And it's, or it's possible that we just didn't have, you know, the consensus that we needed. And so then my question is like, what would it have taken to get that? And I don't know. Let me ask you about that question about tech influence in particular. Mm -hmm. Could you feel it on the Hill? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you kind of aware of lobbying efforts when you're uh, drafting this work? Are you getting phone calls? Are you, you know, running into people on the steps that uh, seem to (laughs) magically appear? Yeah. So I'm really lucky in that I worked for two members of Congress who, you know, certainly were not, (laughs) you know, we're not checking in with lobbyists at the companies about their proposals. Um, So I got to stay pretty sheltered personally from it as I was working. Now, when I came to lift my head up and think about, okay, how are we going to get something passed? I mean, I think you hear a lot about it, right? So I heard about a lot of my colleagues taking meetings with lobbyists, especially in the Senate. You heard about, you know, various members taking meetings with CEOs, but, you know, you don't really know what's being discussed in them. You don't really know if there's like a lot of money changing hands. Certainly, like while you're on the Hill, that's not being discussed. Fundraising happens, you know, very outside of the Hill. But yeah, I mean, especially as bills start to move, the lobbyists show up and they start asking for for changes or, you know, exaggerating maybe certain provisions of the bill and saying this is really, really going to harm X, Y, Z. And, you know, look, aides on the Hill, like we're working on so many issues that if an interest group of, of any type, company or otherwise, shows up with a handful, an argument, we don't always have time to go do the research to see how legitimate that argument is. And so, I mean, I certainly did on tech policy issues, but not everyone has the capacity to do that for every single issue. So I do think that it plays a role for sure. Let's talk a little bit about just the kind of global context, I suppose. You know, while we're working on these things in the U.S., um, and, you know, getting a lot of the right ideas in place again and getting a lot of the right language into proposed bills, at least, are what seems like the right language. Europeans are, you know, full steam ahead. Uh, Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, moving ahead with AI regulation. Is that sort of something that you're aware of? Are you watching the Europeans, uh, you know, out of the corner of your eye? Are you aware of the fact that they seem to be sort of leapfrogging the U.S.? For sure. Absolutely. I was watching them very closely, both in, in a couple of different regards. So, so starting with antitrust, when we were, were working on our investigation, Europe was working on a few investigations as well. And it also just recently finished some really interesting investigations. So there was a lot of work to pull from, from them. And I've been really impressed with Europe's investigations in antitrust. Um, I do also like several of the provisions or that are being discussed for the Digital Markets Act. You know, something that makes it what that's so gut-wrenching when I think about antitrust in the EU is that they're just so limited in what they can do. Because at the end of the day, the United States let Google buy DoubleClick, let Google buy YouTube, let Facebook buy Instagram, let Facebook buy WhatsApp, right? When it comes to structural separation in the spaces where that is needed, we are the ones that have to do this. And so it's it's kind of hard because you're, you're, just, you're just watching them do really interesting stuff, but it's just so hard when you know underlying there's the structural issues that just like have to change, right? These companies are just too big and probably need to be split up in a strategic way. So that's antitrust, definitely learning a lot from their work, but it's it's hard and gut-wrenching to watch sometimes. Privacy certainly, right? I think we're certainly learning a lot. Um, GDPR has definitely changed the internet. I think, you know, I think for everyone, I would say many of the provisions in ADPA 
you know, specifically the emphasis on data minimization and data loyalty, this idea of you collect data, you use it in a way that the consumer expects you to and not, and not anything else. Those are definitely inspired by conversations around the GDPR. And I think that we'll continue to learn in that regard. And then online safety, this is the one I obviously want to speak about for a bit. Um, so I think we have a very unique window of opportunity right now. And I will tell anyone who will listen about this. Um, so apologies to anyone who's already heard this rant from me. Over the next few years, everything in the DSA is going to go into force. So that means many of the transparency provisions that advocates in the US would like to see are going to start being implemented. And every time that one of these disclosure requirements or transparency requirements goes into effect, there's an opportunity for us, and I'm talking big picture us, so like all the advocacy orgs, members of Congress, you know, agencies, academics, et cetera, to really push on the companies that operate in the US and Europe to give similar US-centric disclosures, right? So for example, the VLOP counts, the very large, large online platform counts were just due recently. I want those counts for the US, right? And I know what I'm saying sounds like, Anna, you seriously are just going to like ask these companies to voluntarily do stuff. I get it. I get it. I want regulation too. But I, I really want to emphasize that the existence of the DSA makes this different. This is not like us asking them to do things without... Um, one of our major trading partners also asking for it. And the reason the DSA shifts the conversation is, so first, it takes away one of a, a couple of arguments. So, you know, three years on the Hill, I've heard a lot of talking points from companies. Um, and a couple of their favorites are, what you're proposing is way too complicated. Uh, it'll never work. We don't have that data. We don't have that system. You know, they love to say this stuff. Well, we've taken that argument away because if you're following the DSA provisions, then you've figured it out. Um, so you take away that argument. They also like to say, oh, it's going to take so many resources. You know, Smaller companies won't be able to invest those resources. Well, you have this kind of tiered size model in Europe and they've already invested the resources. All you're asking for now is a marginal <laughs> few extra resources to do it in the US. So you've taken away a lot of the arguments they love to use. Additionally, the DSA shifts the incentives around some of this stuff. So just like companies don't want to see a bunch of different privacy laws, they also really don't want a bunch of different transparency laws. And they're looking at California, right? California just did a privacy law last year. They're talking about doing a few more. So if you're a company, you're already complying with the DSA, there are going to be a few who will be strategic and want to get out in front of that and start doing these disclosures so that they can push for similar looking disclosures <laughs> um, and make their life a little bit easier. And then the last thing I want to say is voluntary standards and uh, sort of voluntary compliance. We've seen this work in other product safety contexts before, where what will happen is a subset of companies will do the voluntary best practice and a subset won't. And so what happens is one, two, three years down the line, the companies who are doing this, who are investing in researcher access programs, in disclosures, in user counts, they start to show up to Congress like, hey, we're doing this, but our competitors aren't. Knock this off, right? This is really annoying. And now what you've done is you've broken up a coalition of industry groups. So that was a very long-winded answer, but I think we have a very unique one to two-year opportunity to really, really build off the DSA, I think, if, if we're strategic about it. Let me try to meet what you say is your innate pessimism uh, with maybe some more pessimism. So uh, maybe an, another argument you could make about the sort of state of things at the moment perhaps drawing from you know the composure of certain tech CEOs uh, recently, uh, the way they're comporting themselves. And 
the reporting that we've seen in places like the New York Times about some of the larger tech platforms almost standing down a little bit uh, on addressing some of the harms of things like disinformation. Do you think that corporate leaders have on some level kind of internalized that Congress isn't going to do anything mm, yeah. in this term, maybe next year, uh, who knows what happens in 2024 and beyond? And that to some extent, you know, we've had all the hearings and that's all been done and there were no consequences. Mm. And so, you know, what was it all for essentially? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So I'll just share this memory I have. So when we were working on the antitrust investigation, uh, I have this very distinct, vivid memory from the hearing in July, 2020. So there was this moment where, you know, all the CEOs are up on the Zoom screens and Jeff Bezos is like sitting back in his chair, like very relaxed. He hadn't really been asked very many questions and he's just like eating grapes, <laughs> like very nonchalantly, like just so chill, not worried at all. And there was just this attitude like radiating off of him. Like these guys can't touch me. I can buy them off. I mean, AWS hosts most of the government web. So it's like, what are they going to do to me? Right. I don't know if that's actually what was going through his mind. This is just as me as the staffer. This is just what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking. And I just remember being so angry. And it was just this very distinct moment where I was like, this is why monopolists are dangerous. Right because they can just wave off regulators. And so, you know, this whole Twitter situation, like I can't even, people ask me what I think about online safety and what it's going to mean. And I just like can't even answer that question because I am just so angry <laughs> that we let this billionaire buy this platform and that we let this billionaire exist in this way, right? Um, Billionaires are dangerous to democracy, right? I'm not the first to say this. Um, you know, Justice Brandeis has this quote, we can have, can have democracy in this country or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And that is just so resident right now. You know, look, we need tax reform. We need, anti we need to enforce our antitrust laws. Like we just really have to get to the bottom of this, which is that we cannot have people who can get this powerful. So anyway, it's just this interesting reminder of like, for those of us who care about online safety and all of these other issues that they're all very connected. While we're talking about risks to democracy, you mentioned January 6th and that you were in and around the halls of Congress uh, around that date. Um, sure. Can you talk a little bit about that experience, uh, the extent to which that changed your time working in the House? Absolutely. Yeah. So it was a really interesting day. I remember it like very, you know, as most people um, very vividly. So it was towards the end of my fellowship with Congressman Cicely. So I was like wrapping things up. I was working remotely that day, but I live on 16th Street. So I remember waking up that morning and like, first off, just so excited, right? I mean, the advocates in Georgia, amazing, right? Just so exciting to see the results um, from the Georgia Senate races. I remember like putting peaches in my smoothie. Like I was just like so excited, but I could hear, you know, because the people who were there for the rally were in town and I could hear them on 16th street, like going down to the white house. And I remember thinking like, all right, whatever, you know, they're here, they're here to share their voice. It's DC. This happens a lot, but we won the Senate and, you know, we're, we're going to get some stuff done. And, you know, obviously as each hour passed in the day, it got very scary um, and there were these moments we just didn't know what was going on. Right. So I was I was remote. A lot of my colleagues were remote, but a lot of my colleagues were on the hill. 
And a lot of them were in spaces where you couldn't message them. Like you couldn't, you, you didn't know if they were okay. So there were just these hours we were like waiting to try to make sure that everyone was in a safe space and was okay. And so it was obviously like a very scary time. And I think for me, you know, having just spent a year basically like going through these documents and really understanding the ad tech market and the information ecosystem and the incentives and the practices of some of these companies and just the role that the information ecosystem like obviously played in this violent attack. I just was filled, like filled with this deep knowing that I was going to need to stay. And I didn't know exactly how I was going to stay. My fellowship had ended. Um, and that's when I started reaching out to, to Congresswoman Trahan's office um, and got really lucky. But yeah, it was just an incredibly moving day. And then, and then what I'll say is when I eventually did start with Congressman Trahan, which was about a month later, I showed up to the congressional building, you know, the Capitol, and it had just fence, this big fence surrounding it. And there were members of the National Guard all around. And in my early 20s, I did a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa. And I remember walking up to the Capitol and being like, it felt like I was walking into a government building in Namibia or Uganda, or Rwanda. And it was just like very striking, sort of like, wow, this is the people's house. And they closed up the people's house. And it was incredibly infuriating, right? And, you know, I remember just, it was infuriating, but also I just was so driven to want to try to address this, right? Um, so yeah, it definitely changed, you know, the house, it took a long time for it to really open back up again, but look, you know, I'm really proud of many of the members of Congress for, despite things being closed down, like really using phones, using, um, zoom, using, you know, like using all of these platforms they could to continue to hear from their constituents, to continue to engage stakeholders, even while the actual physical building was, was closed. What do you make of uh, another big investigation, the House Select Committees, look into the role of social media? Did you pay close attention to that output? Were you exposed to that investigation at all while it was happening? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, certainly was not on the team. I was more of like a cheerleader (laughs) from the, uh, you know, from a different committee. But look, I think they did an incredible job recording this moment in history and documenting the kind of leader Donald J. Trump was. In terms of their report that was related to online platforms, I didn't get a chance, full disclosure, to read it all. I did what a lot of policy analysts do, and I skimmed to the recommendations, which I thought were great and very much in line with a lot of Congressman Trahan's work. Uh, so I was excited to see that. But look, you know, unfortunately, the Select Committee wasn't truly, truly bipartisan, right? History will tell the story of Cheney and Kinzinger, and will also tell the story of the cowardice of their colleagues, frankly. But because that was not a truly bipartisan investigation, I don't think we had an opportunity to do a comprehensive bipartisan, like online safety information ecosystem transparency type of bill that I think a lot of us would have liked to do. So look, I think they did the best they could with the situation that they had. And in some ways, January 6th could have been one of those catalyzing moments for Mm -hmm. uh, tech reform, but it turned out not to be. Definitely. Yeah. So let me ask you just a, a little bit more about the process with the Congresswoman. You got the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act to the point of consideration. Were there Republicans who were fans of it uh, or willing to work with you on it? Do you think that type of bill uh, stands a chance at any point in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good questions. So I think it's worth noting and this is true not only of DeSosa, but also Social Media Data Act and a few of Congressman Trahan's other kind of investigations and 
and proposals that she put out that a lot of them were really sort of at the front of like shifting the way we think about online safety. So when I first started working in Congress, there were dozens of Section 230 bills. I think we might be up over 100 now. I mean, there's so many. That was really the approach people were taking on both sides of the aisle, right? Like uh, Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act was written in the 90s. It needs to be fixed. And so a lot of what myself and another colleague kind of working on transparency issues were doing was trying to say, listen, liability for content is, is tricky for a wide range of reasons. Let's start really viewing content moderation as a set of processes and systems, right? It's a, it's a series of algorithms. It's a series of people. It's a series of design choices. Let's start looking at it that way and really shifting the incentives so that companies want to do those processes better. And when I say better, I don't mean take down more stuff or leave more stuff up. I mean, like, write value-driven policies and do your best to implement them well and think about the risks to society and think about how you're going to mitigate them. And so that's really the approach we were coming in with, with both trying to encourage better researcher access to social media data so that you have sort of this independent check and independent understanding of how the platforms work and maybe are causing harms. Things like risk assessments and mitigation reporting, which is a big part of DeSosa. A lot of these were really, really new ideas. So, you know, I certainly was not expecting them to like catch on immediately and pass in the law. I do think the Overton window on many of them has moved substantially. And the number of groups that are now involved in these issues. I mean, when I first started, like, I remember reaching out to public interest groups to get help on the Social Media Data Act. And many had just like not even thought about if researchers should get access to social media data and how to balance that with privacy and First Amendment issues and Fourth Amendment issues, and I, you know, could go on and on. And me approaching them with like this idea was the was the first time they were even thinking about it. So, long way of answering your question. There's just so much socializing we need to do. Do I think Republicans can get on board with this? I do actually. I think a lot of Republicans have been speaking about wanting more transparency into these platforms wanting to understand the decisions they're making. I don't think they have totally socialized like exactly what they want their approach to be to that transparency. So I think right now it's just a matter of like, how do you get people at the same table so they can actually figure out how are we going to do this? I think the big questions are who, who should oversee the disclosures is a big challenge right now. Um, You know, this is not a secret. <laughs> the Republicans are not uh, very excited about a big government budget that funds either a new agency or a new bureau at the FTC. <laughs> um, so then it's like, okay, well, if you can't build some kind of capacity into the government, how else do you get these disclosures? Who looks over them? Who makes sure that they're protecting people's privacy? Um, so that I think that's the big set of questions right now. And we've shifted the conversation so much. So now I'm hoping that we can have one. Almost feels like even listening to some of the argument around the Twitter files and the mm-hmm. Hunter Biden laptop and, you know, the rest of the stuff out of uh, Jim Jordan's um, uh, strange committee hearings over the last uh, few weeks that, you know, if you kind of kind of take away the rhetoric and you take away some of the details that some of the calls for transparency and accountability do sound very similar to the types of calls mm-hmm. um, that that folks are making. But I, can you see that happening? Can you see them yeah. coming together or even recognizing that maybe they're after the same thing, possibly for different reasons, but that there could be some yeah. way to come together around that? 
Justin, I've really, really tried <laughs> and I'll keep really, really trying. I think it is really hard, particularly now in the house with just all the conversations about the budget, right? And, and, and putting more resources into the government and spending that just almost in some ways makes it a little bit of a non-starter because there's just like really no way to do a transparency and disclosure regime without some entity <laughs> in the government um, that's going to sort of do those rules and look at those disclosures and determine who a qualified researcher is. Right? You just like have to have some capacity. So I think that's played a role, unfortunately. And then I think there's also just, especially in the House, there's a little bit of a competition between the two parties to be like, we are the party that is fixing big tech, right? And so I think, unfortunately, that's created a little bit of an incentive to be like, I don't know, we want to do this. We want to figure this out on our own, which, you know, to what I was saying earlier, it's just not possible with tech policies because you have to get 60 senators. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully there'll be a shift and, and people will come together on that. I have a friend who has this theory that everyone likes to say that they, they're strong on tech issues, that they want to fix big tech. They want to kind of take it to big tech. But at the end of the day, Everyone also wants to sort of, you know, take money from big tech and they want to fundraise uh, on problems with big tech. Um, and so, you know, there's a kind of disincentive in Congress yeah. to actually do anything about any tech issues uh, for that reason, because then not only would you perhaps lose support of the tech firms themselves, but you might lose a talking point for raising money from the grassroots. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly an interesting theory. I mean, I think the other thing that's really interesting, too, is that most of the bills are not actually, quote unquote, big tech bills. I mean, this is really interesting. So ADPA covers any entity that collects data, you know, is covered by that bill, including nonprofits, by the way. And there was there were tiers based on how much data and the size of the company, you know, you had more data rights you had to comply with. Um, but still, it covered everyone. As it should. I mean, a comprehensive privacy bill should. But it was really funny to hear people talk about it as if it was a bill that was going after big tech when it was really just going after any entity that was, you know, collecting data. And then similarly with a lot of the online safety bills, is that they actually cover a lot of platforms that have user-generated content, right? Everything from like travel websites that have comments and rankings to, you know, Wikipedia gets thrown out a lot, right? Like there's a lot of user-generated content out there. Um, and even like cloud service providers make content moderation decisions, right? So that's been really interesting too, is that like actually many of these bills, with the exception of the NHS bills, which, which had very clear cutoffs for just the big companies, most of the bills actually are the whole entire industry. And so it is funny to see so many members kind of lean into just, just the big companies. So what are you doing now or what's next? Can we expect to see you back on Capitol Hill at some point in the future or certainly in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm definitely in Washington, D.C., still very much around. So I'm actually a full-time scholar of sorts. So I've actually been working on my Ph.D. at University of Maryland for the last four years. A lot of my work centers around public engagement in tech policy. So there's issues I was talking about before, just in terms of tech policy, like being underneath kitchen table issues and being very expert driven at the moment. You know, we, we do a lot of outreach to experts, but we don't always hear from the constituents and, and the users and the public at large. So a lot of my work centers around that. Uh, our lab created a game called Contenter in which people learn about how Section 230 works and then can engage in sort of policy discussion around platform accountability. Uh, we also did a study on privacy conscious smart home users and really trying to understand the way people are protecting their data in their kind of advanced smart homes and how we can 
put in privacy policies that can encourage that behavior. Um, and then also been looking a lot at how stakeholders influence privacy policy, both in the U.S. and Europe. So to get into some of your earlier questions, like why does this work in Europe? <laughs> like, can we, are there things we can learn about how that policy is influenced and move that over to the states? So, you know, working on the PhD and then starting March 1st, I will be a policy fellow at GW's, so George Washington University's Institute for Data, Democracy and Politics, working under Rebecca Trumbull. So very excited for this. And that role will be multifaceted, but will include very much translating and bridging scholarship around online safety with policies at the federal level, state, international. I'm hoping to just be a resource for people working on, you know, tech transparency, data rights, uh, and making sure that they have all the information they need to, to do informed policy. Um, and then the last project that I would love to talk about is a continuation of an issue I worked on during the last NDAA, so the National Defense Authorization Act. Over the last few years, working on researcher access to social media data, it's become very clear to me that like a country-by-country country approach to researcher access is going to pose a lot of challenges, um, mostly because, you know, the internet doesn't have a ton of borders. Uh, if I have a photo of me on, you know, Instagram with my German exchange student, you know, whose data rights are implicated in that? What API stream does that end up in? You know, I really think it would be smart if we were able to have researchers from the U.S. and some of our partner nations be able to study online platforms across the kind of broader jurisdiction of countries. And fortunately, the Carnegie Endowment for um, International Peace has been working on a project called IRIE, the Institute for Research on the Information Environment. And it's a really cool project. They're building out this like shared infrastructure for researching the information ecosystem. But the Trahan and Cicilline wrote an amendment, which is Section 5860 of the House passed NDAA, if you want to look at it, that really directed the State Department to kind of start to initiate multilateral agreements to really harmonize privacy laws and data and research ethics laws across nations that might want to share this type of research infrastructure. And so um, that's going to be something that I'll be continuing to research and write about and advocate for because I think um, it, there's, there's huge opportunities to take that approach. Well, very exciting. And, you know, something that perhaps may not get the same type of attention as a congressional bill, but in the long run could potentially have uh, you know, huge impact if there is in fact a kind of coalition of democracies that are able to synchronize on these issues. Agree, agree. Well, and you're working with Rebecca Trombo, who's uh, been a friend to Tech Policy Press and is mm -hmm. at the center of those conversations, uh, both here and in Europe. So that should be great work ahead. Um, so I wish you luck and I hope you'll come back and Tell us more about your work at another yeah, time. I would love to. And I also just would love to take the opportunity to say to you and all of your guests in the community that there are tech staffers on the Hill who do listen every Sunday. We do really care about uh, the conversations that are happening here. And they've been really, really thoughtful. And I've been really grateful. So thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to Brian Jones, my co-founder. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.